Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel, and today I'll be joined on the podcast by Tom Pitts. Now, the Final Draft Podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. Every week, I broadcast a show called Final Draft. It um, comes out of the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Final Draft is a show that is dedicated to exploring Australian writing. From debut authors to the established authors writing the classics that you love, each of these conversations looks at the issues that have driven the author's storytelling. They're a way to help you discover more about these books that you love. Because these are the stories that make us who we are. Now, 2SER as a radio station broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people. I am recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunagara people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, as I said, I'm going to be joined today by Tom Pitts. Uh, Tom's novel is, his new novel, is called Electric and Mad and Brave. And this is an incredible um, book that takes a raw and honest look at mental health, chronicling a journey of a young man as he explores his life and the events that have led to him being where he is. I'm going to let Tom explain that a little bit more, but I found it, I found it raw. I found it honest. It's one of those books that you kind of have to put down and take a deep breath every now and again, but absolutely rewards the the time you take to read it. So join me as we discover Tom Pitt's Electric and Mad and Brave. Hello, Tom. How are you going? Hi. I'm good, mate. How are you? Not too bad. Are you well? I am very well. Thank you so much for joining me. It's like you're still at work. Uh, Yes, we've just, uh, just finished for the day. The uh, kids have gone home, but we're still here. I do appreciate um, you taking the time to join me. That's right on knockoff. On Friday, yeah. no less. That's right, of, of all days. Yeah. No, that's, um, I really appreciate it. And you're a music teacher. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I teach um, primary music, so prep to six, which is a lot of fun. And it's also like just just before some of them get a little bit too cool, you know what I mean? So it's kind of got that... Uh, innate enthusiasm that kids have with music, which is kind of a lot of fun. Uh, I can imagine. I can imagine. I work, I'm a speech pathologist, so I work um, sort of primary, but, uh, you know, my role is a little bit more sort of intervention-y, but yeah, it's a great age to work with, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Look, I won't, um, I won't drag this out. I am excited to get into the book. Fantastic. Well, here we go. It's my great pleasure to be welcoming to the show Tom Pitts. Tom is a playwright, a performer, sound designer, pianist and band leader. He is also a writer and he is joining us today with his first novel, Electric and Mad and Brave. Tom, I gushed off air about this novel. I've loved it so much. I'm excited to be talking. Welcome. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. No, no, it's really exciting to be on the program and having a chat about it. It's very surreal to have the book out. So talking about it's been quite unreal, yeah. And it it is such... um, it is such a book. I feel like people are going to come to this in so many different ways. Um, I typically start with a little bit of an intro to the book, um, but I'm actually going to flip that. I don't. I don't want to read my intro. I want to actually turn it back on you. How do you introduce this book? Like, what's your what's your pitch? How do you describe the story to people? Oh, look. Well, my pitch when I tell it to people is that it is the the diary of a um, a young man who is talking about, I suppose, the um, traumatic. Um, uh, past that he had with his childhood sweetheart. Um, however, because things, I suppose, didn't go exactly as he planned or imagined, he he doesn't really tell the truth within the novel. So um, it's got that unreliable narrator part to it um, as he tries to 
kind of work through the trauma of that experience. Um, the reader understands what actually happened as it, as it comes out and, and we get toward the end. I love that you've introduced this idea of an unreliable narrator um, because it can, it can seem to sort of give something away but then also open up uh, just a whole ra- – I mean, when we know a narrator is, is maybe not giving us the full picture, I guess a story can go anywhere – we begin with Matt, he's in a mental health facility, and I guess ostensibly this novel is a journal that he is writing. He's been encouraged to write this journal as part of um, his process. I wanted to start a little bit with mental health. At one point in the book, a character is described as having little empathy for anyone battling self-doubt, insecurity or mental illness. Affectations she believed were simply variations of indolence. Like mental health is still an area of all of our lives that can feel taboo, even off limits. Throughout the novel, you show us a range of characters all experiencing their own mental health and mental illness in various ways. How How would you like the reader to approach the book and approach these depictions? Yeah, look, well, I hope that the, um, I hope it's with sympathy, definitely. I think that there's a lot of angles to the the mental illness um, theme within the book. And I suppose, uh, you know, there's, there's my own angle, of course, and a lot of the, a lot of the conversations that he has with his psychologists are pretty much verbatim things that, that, you know, I've said before and have been said to me, but I think that over my life, I've, I've had a few situations and a lot of people I know have as well, where they've had someone very close to them who has been experiencing um, mental illness and has been finding it very difficult to cope. And they have found themselves in a situation where, where they think that maybe they're the person that needs to help, you know, because it might be a best friend or a partner or something. So they feel like it's, I suppose, they so desperately want to help, but at the same time feel completely unequipped. And something I really hoped to capture in the book was that the the narrator who's speaking about his friend who's suffering from this illness, it, it wants to, I suppose, be the person that helps or the person that is the hero or the person that's able to pull him out, but at the same time is feeling completely helpless, which I think is, a, is an experience a lot of us can feel sometimes and we don't understand what someone else is going through. I feel like, I, I don't know if you've, you've experienced this as well, but quite often guys get accused of wanting to be fixers, you know, um, and yes. yeah. <laughs> so right. yeah, yeah, I think it's, yeah. something, I think it's something a lot of people can relate to. And what is wonderful, it only just occurred to me now, but in Electric and Mad and Brave, by, by choosing this book, by, by opening it up and, and just listening to Matt's story, we are doing that, that one thing that is so incredibly important and just being there and, and being a witness to what someone is going through and just, and just hearing, um, that only just really occurred to me, but it is this wonderful exercise in, in sort of going along with that with Matt. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I think sometimes Matt perhaps gets caught up with, um, you know, I, I suppose gets sucked into a, a wanting to help, but also wanting to be the person that helps as well. And really wanting to, I suppose, be seen as that kind of hero character, even though, you know, as he comes to realize he's, you know, in, in he's seeing the picture completely from the wrong point of view and he's not the hero because he has, is not able to help or understand what's going on. Mm. As, as Matt is trying to chronicle his past, he finds himself up against clinic rules, loud singing roommates. Tell me a little bit about setting this book in a healthcare facility. Like how, why, and how did that shape the story? Like, did, was it to throw challenges against yourself for realism? I, I've just found it compelling. 
Yeah, yeah. So the 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 idea of having the um, the protagonist in a um, mental health facility came from, I suppose, you know, I've sort of been around them a lot, and the first time I was. Um, exposed to one. I was, I was eight years old and my friend was very ill, but at the time I, I, I suppose I didn't understand it. And I remember my dad coming in and saying, look, she's, we're going to visit her. She's in a hospital. So I went to the hospital. Um, and at the time I was looking around going, what this, there's no one is ill here. There's no one. I can't see anyone on crutches. I can't see any, anyone that is physically ill. And the concept to me was so, um, not able, not something I was able really to comprehend. Um, and there's been a lot of times that I've, um, um, you know, um, had a lot of friends who have been inside these institutions. Um, and I, uh, I myself haven't been inside, I haven't been institutionalized. So for me to come and, you know, I suppose tackle that point of view was a, a great deal of research with several friends who are, you know, currently in or have been in institutions and also approaching the institutions themselves. Um, but I did want um, the main character to work through their own trauma at the same time as, as relating the trauma of their friend. Um, so having him there at the beginning and, and seeing him work through the challenge of being in there and then facing the outside world was really important to the narrative, I think. Yeah. It, it seemed like also it, it allowed you to approach some of the stigma. Matt works his way through moments, um, trying to understand who he is um, through other people's, you know, imaginings of him. He, he quite often puts himself in in other people's um, eyes, bodies, shoes, and and observes himself as. Um, I think at one point the smile didn't reach the woman's eyes because, of course, I was just this, you know, the the strange person smiling at her, or his mother defending him in a cafe because, as he perceives himself, he's he's sort of just out on on an excursion. Um, was was approaching some of that stigma on your mind? I think that uh, it, it, it entirely was completely, yeah. I think um, that kind of third person or, or that looking down person is actually something that I suppose came into the book over a long period of time. The book, the book has a quite a long, a long history. It actually wasn't a novel to begin with. It actually started as I was in a band and it was two songs and I had these songs about a, a, a boy and a girl running away to elope and start this new life and... Uh, and after the band broke up, uh, I, I kind of liked the story of those songs. So I had a theatre company at the time and it became a, a monologue called Christina about this this same story of this this boy and this girl and their, um, I suppose, the dysfunctional houses that both of them were brought up into. Um, and I wrote this when I was about 22 and it was only when I went back to study teaching that I, I came back to the story and started writing prose. I, ne I never thought it would be a novel, but it was really interesting reading that um, monologue that I wrote when I was 22 about this love story between this boy and girl and how obsessed they were and, and how obsessed I was when I was writing it. And I couldn't help read that story through the lens of now being a 32-year-old adult. And there was something kind of semi-amusing, <coughs> semi, um, really kind of cute about my feelings back then. So it was really interesting going back over the story when I, when I wrote it and having it viewed through the lens of an older person that has that cynical eye on the way they acted in the first part. So there's a lot of instances where he does try and look outside himself to how someone might be viewing him or how he himself views his actions at the time. And often it's with, you know, self-loathing or embarrassment at the way that he, he behaved yeah. or that he worries he might behave 
from other people's perspective. I love that. I love what you've just said there and that idea because it just segues so beautifully. I really was interested in the way where Matt sort of, he begins the journal about everything that happened at Witchwood Farm. Uh, and that's where he met Christina. Christina is an absolute force in Matt's memory. And there's a particularly evocative moment, again, early in the book, where Matt's therapist describes, if you peeled back my skull and looked over the edge, you'd find Christina pulling strings and wreaking havoc. And I wondered, I wondered about, of course, I can't, I'm not going to tell any of our listeners about how this all plays out, but I always wondered, is it always so with memory? You know, we, we feel everything was brighter, sharper, more important in that sort of ill-defined back then, that romantic feeling that you just described of looking back on the younger memory. Yeah, I, look, I think we do. I think I remember. I can't remember which book I was reading in, but I, I remember there was the, the quote was something like everyone, uh, everyone's childhood is amazing and blessed in their own memory, which is completely mm-hmm. sad because some people have awful childhoods, mm-hmm. and I think that there's a lot of that in there. Um, but I suppose the other, I suppose there is that romanticizing of the past. But another um, thing that I, I often feel a lot, especially, and it comes with mental illness or with mood, is that how we view things externally. I don't think has really anything to do with any external, but how, how we're feeling in our inner lives. So, mm. um, you know, it's a, a, some particular view might seem amazing, but it's because you're, you're feeling particularly good that day. And I think that's something I tried to, I guess, capture in the novel is that roller coaster ride. And there's some points in the time when um, Matt is just disgusted by everything in the past and he can't see past the good. And a lot of that is because how he's feeling at that particular moment, or he might be in a, a wistful mood when he's thinking about a particularly good time or he's feeling particularly good. And then we get those heightened exceptional um, moments of his life that he loves retelling. Yeah. I mean, I want to build up a little bit more to just the the larger sort of arc of storytelling that I think you're engaging with here. But I guess, again, as you say, it's, it it has to be important. We have to, as, as individuals, we have to say to ourselves, well, of course, the story was important because it was what brought me here. And I mean, it is it is part of just, you know, being okay with ourselves every morning when we wake up that everything yeah. brought me to this point. So it, it must have been pretty special. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, and I think, yeah, that that unpacking to that particular point is, I suppose, you know, and you were saying not giving it away, but um, to to all the listeners, but yeah, I suppose it is um, about unpacking and unpacking and and coming um, to that final point, or or suppose being able to to look that point in the eye, I guess, becomes the point of the, the novel. Mm. Um, I feel like you've already addressed this a little bit, but I do I do want to keep asking um, and unpacking it a little bit because through Matt's reminiscences through the the narrative. We we have summers spent together, parties, moments of loss, and it's clear how much Matt loves Christina. Was it hard to capture that kind of adolescent love, um, and 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 not just capture it, but also presenting it as a memory of someone who is not in that space now? Because I mean, it it, it does always seem like from my own memory and from narrative that. Adolescent love just burns so much brighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, uh, you know, I don't think, as, as I said, I did say, uh, like, um, a part of it was written, you know, a very long time ago. And admittedly, when I wrote that, I was just in the grips, you know, of, of one of those real kind of as less and more, more infatuations, I suppose, than love. And, you know, I genuinely believe I'd found someone that had um, no faults. I was like, oh, I found someone with no faults. Fantastic. They actually exist, which, of, of course, is absurd. Um, but I think, um, you know, I think it's, worth saying that that is is not love that that that, that those kind of feelings it's just that you know it's i guess it's your own self-worth you know and it's it's you 
feeling good about yourself, someone making you feel good about yourself, you know, you're in a really kind of happy time. And then you also kind of like the person as well, which you, I guess at that age mistake for being in love. So then when you get to your thirties or your, whatever you are, you're like, Oh, you know, never had love like that because um, of course that wasn't love in the first place. Um, But I think I've got, I think we've all got one of those, one of those experiences. And uh, I personally found it pretty easy to go back to that time and remember the melodramatic heartache and the, and the kind of real intensity of the feeling that you felt back then. And I I really enjoyed writing those parts. I've got to say Uh, it was kind of somehow delicious and self-indulgent to really go back into that, those memories and that part of myself. I always feel like sometimes that, um, that type of, of story presents a real conundrum. I, I, I wonder if some people go, well, was it realer back then? Have I lost something now? Or is it like, no, 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 cooler heads prevailed type of, I just, I I love that the, this, this idea should, can and should torture people that, you know, love should never be static. Yeah. I mean, I don't know who knows. That's, that's a, (laughs) I remember sitting on the porch with one of my friends drinking a beer, uh, in his backyard. And I said, Oh God, I remember when we used to sit here and drink beer in the backyard and how amazing that was. And of course we were doing that very thing. And now I'm telling you, and I'm thinking wistfully about the moment when I was thinking wistfully about the moment, you know? Mm. So I guess, you know, purely that having time away does kind of make things a little bit grandiose and, and more fantastic than perhaps they actually were. And of course you do that incredible thing in the book where you, you present and challenge the idea of memory. I mean, the journal is, is presented to Matt as a way out. It is a way for him to unpack and maybe move forward from the situation he's in. And he obsesses over the detail. He declares, I need to stick to the facts. Tell tell what actually happened. Otherwise, what's the point? Otherwise, I may as well be writing a fantasy. Um, which is which is pregnant with meaning for, for people who have read Electric and Mad and Brave. Because memory isn't just about what happened. It's also what it means. Matt's flagging himself here as the unreliable narrator. How did you go about weaving a tale that involved so many memories? How'd you keep it straight for yourself? Yeah, well, you know, I guess it was, as I said, it was a really long process um, and deciding what memories were a very long editing process. And there was a lot more memories in there than, um, than there were, there was, you know, things that happened at the school, things that happened outside the house. And, and it was a long process to work out, I suppose, which memories were being kept. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it was also a really difficult process um, that uh, was a big decision when, when the writing happened was that whether or not Matt was actually telling the truth or whether he was trying to lie to himself or whether he was, you know, physically not wanting to reveal things to himself or to the reader. And uh, that was, that was a really late decision actually in the process that he, he always tells the truth. It's just that his view of the past is warped by, you know, I suppose the, the things that happened, the trauma that went on and his love for Christina. Um, so it was, it was a really long and, and difficult process to work out exactly which of those memories were going to stay and which were going to go. Did you have, did it have you second guessing, yourself because I know you've definitely got me thinking about my own process of memory and where I might embellish, where I might hide and what that actually means. You know, like we, we live as if our past is um, I, I guess standing on, on stone, but really what you present is that there are very many more shifting sands and we might like to acknowledge. Oh yeah. Entirely. I think um, 
I've, I've got this memory when I was a, a, a kid. I don't know how old I would have been, but I, I ran into the lounge room. I jumped on a chair and the chair rolled and smashed this glass door that we had. Um, and my entire family says, no, no, that wasn't you. That was your brother. But I have this clear memory of me doing it. And I'm not sure if it was me and my brother just, you know, um, tried to put it on me. So I, so I thought it was me or if it, uh, or if I've just kind of made up this memory out, out of what happened. Um, I think my partner is actually a psychologist and um, she does a lot of talk about memory and um, yeah, it's, it's re- super unreliable. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's, we're talking 60% or something like that when you go, when you go way, way back, but yeah, it's, it's a fascinating and murky thing to start writing about. All right. Well, you've, you've now just told me your partner's a psychologist. I am always fascinated by receptions to books that I have enjoyed and that I've really engaged with. It sounds like you have got an incredible like beta reader there. Was, was she involved in the process? Um, how did the reading go? What are the impressions? Yeah. Oh, oh look. So, um, Kate, is, it was, I suppose, a person I bounced ideas off, off always. And, um, uh, a lot of reading about character, a lot of reading, you know, about, you know, would they act like this? Would, you know, when I can't see the forest for the trees, she was really fantastic. Um, I'm not going to lie. It was very handy in terms of talking about psychology, having, um, Kate there. There's a lot of little, I, I suppose, Easter eggs in there because when Matt is talking about psychology, of course, it's from his point of view. So when he diagnoses Christina, he only diagnoses with what he's been diagnosed with. So he's incorrect with his diagnosis diagnosis and what he believes is going on there. And so it was really um, amazing to have her there to help with that technical side of it as well in terms of, you know, DSM and, 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 and all that diagnosis. Um, but yeah, yes. Um, she was forever getting handed pages to, I suppose, analyze and, and give feedback to. That is fabulous. It, I mean, it's a real testament to the book because this, this is an incredible book that does delve into that for you to have such a close reader. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very, very. Tom, like there is so much, there is so much to the story that I'm, I'm keeping vague because I want people to have the enjoyment of discovering it as I did. I want to just actually come into now. I, I, I felt like you were asking a bigger question as well through the book about why we tell and why we also engage with stories. Matt wants his story to mean something. He wants to somehow kind of, I guess, wrap it up in a way that he can feel satisfied. And the process of, of maybe understanding the neat story is central to Electric and Mad and Brave. Do you think we put an artificial pressure on stories? Like, do we shape stories or do they shape us? Um, oh, I think, I, I, I mean, that's a big question. I guess you could say, you know, it, it does work both ways. I think we certainly shape stories. I, I personally feel like it can be very hard to change you know, the way someone is, someone's one's point of view. Um, and I mean, this, this doesn't just go to stories. This goes with what people believe their politics and, and, and a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm. I find a lot of the time people are the way they are and then they retroactively research things, tell stories to, I suppose, affirm the way they are and, mm. and make them believe that what they believe or, or, you know, or the way they are is I suppose the right way. Um, but I guess what the book is saying is that Matt has weaved this story to um, enable himself to cope in the real world. Um, however, the story itself is not true. He's, I guess, built his entire self on a lie. And the only way that he can truly move forward and past, mm. you know, his conundrum is to have, the story be real as opposed to him building a fake story to um, make himself feel okay with the way he is. 
And I'm also really fascinated with the journey of Electric and Mad and Brave from from two songs to a monologue to this incredible novel that we have now. So I need to ask, why do you tell stories, Tim, in all the forms and iterations that you do? Um, Tom, Tom, sorry, why did I say Tim? I've just <laughs> alighted a whole bunch of names and ruined a perfectly good question. <laughs> uh, sorry, say, can you say the question again? I, I, I was re- I'm really interested in the gestation of Electric and Mad and Brave from, from songs to monologue to this incredible novel. And so I just wanted to ask, why, why do you tell stories in all of the ways that you do? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people have asked me that and a lot of people have asked me the adjacent question of what do your stories have a common theme that they're often about? And um, I'm currently writing a novel, novel at the moment and seeing a similar theme that's coming in, which is something we spoke about at the very beginning, is a character desperately wanting to help someone and, and not being able and the guilt that they perhaps feel about you know being unequipped and not being quite there. And I think that the reason that I kept going back to this story was that I felt that idea so strongly as well as a love story. Um, So it was really, I guess, wanting to put those feelings in the, in the correct way. When I, when I read a, when I read a book and and someone just really hits a moment like that and, and they get it, it's just this, massively, I guess, profound moment, you know, where something resonates with you. And I I think it's trying to put that across to get that feeling that you feel so other people can experience it the way you do. Fantastic. I, I love doing the show because it does allow me to explore stories, what they mean and why we tell them. And so Tom, I really appreciate you taking the time. That's, I guess, uh, one of those big questions that, that really do delve into the heart of, of what this is all about. Um, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm going to outro us. I am speaking with Tom Pitts. Electric and Mad and Brave is his debut novel. It is incredible. Um, and there is so much to discover. I really appreciate the time you've taken today, Tom. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Cheers. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you to Tom. Uh, Tom Pitts' new book is Electric and Mad and Brave. It is out from Picador. That is it for today. Great conversations here on Final Draft, and it is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel, and occasionally I am joined by my cats, one of whom is sitting right under the microphone, trying to get on air right now. So if you've joined me right till the end, know that a cat has been sitting with me this whole time. My name is Andrew Popel. Look, stay in touch. You can uh, you can reach out, talk about what you're reading, talk about upcoming books you're excited about. What would you like to see on the show? You just look for at Final Draft 2SER in social media, or you can email finaldraft at 2SER.com. If you subscribe in whatever podcast app you are listening, it means you will get a new great conversation every week. Subscribing and rating is a great way to help other people discover the podcast too. There are so many podcasts out there. There are incredible book podcasts out there. Um, We are by no means the only one, but if you value what we are doing, if you want to get more Australian authors out to the world, give us a rating. It's a small way to, uh, to share the love. I will be back next week with another great conversation from an incredible Australian author here on Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. I'll see you later. Bye.